Hello everybody. This sermon is based on Matthew 4 verses 1 to 11 and its title is Lessons on Temptation. What is the difference between Jesus and Superman? I mean besides the fact that one is real and the other fictional. What is the difference? They both appear normal human beings, and yet they both do extraordinary things. So what is the difference between them? Well, I'm sure there may be a few things we could come up with, but the principal difference between them is this. Superman, as Clark Kent, looks like a normal human being, but underneath, he isn't. Underneath the disguise, he is all-powerful, a kind of computer-age super-magician from outer space that has the power to zap reality into any shape he likes. Jesus, on the other hand, looks like a normal human being, but underneath, well, there isn't any underneath. Jesus looks like a normal human being, and he is a normal human being. That is the incredible miracle of Christmas. God has reduced himself to a normal human being. No, what sets Jesus apart is the Holy Spirit coursing through him. The spirit that conceived him, the spirit that descended upon him at his baptism in the previous passage, the spirit that we shall think about more in a few moments. But for now, hang on to this. Jesus was not Superman. He was fully human. And therefore, when he was tempted, it was exactly the same as when we are tempted. Therefore, there is in this passage help and guidance for us when we find ourselves struggling to do the right thing. I want to take us back, back to the start, back to the garden. There God had given Adam everything he wanted, needed and far more besides. He had a great job, head gardener of all creation. He had a great wife, the beautiful and perfect Eve. He had a great place to live, paradise. All the things human beings strive for in life, Adam had and more. But amongst all this blessing, God spoke one word of instruction. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One simple, very understandable instruction. With everything that Adam had, it should have been easy, right? Up slithered the snake. What is the one thing he seizes on? What is the one thing he raises doubts about? Yes, you got it. The one thing God had said. Did God really say... Did God really say that you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The snake then adds all sorts of plausible things into the equation, all sorts of statements that sound true at the outset, that sound as though they could be from God. You will surely not die, says the snake. Brackets, God loves you too much for that. You must be mistaken. Eat of this and you'll know good and evil. That's a good thing, surely. 
and with the doubt raised and the temptation given, Adam falls and the pattern is set for all of our sin and failing to come. Now fast forward again back to the desert. Matthew has described at great length how Jesus was born into an ordinary, fully human family. Then in chapter 4, he describes a temptation that is almost the same as the one Adam faced. Let me tell you, this is no coincidence. The father has just given Jesus everything he wanted, needed and far more besides. More than just a good job, wife or place to live, he has given Jesus the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended, anointed Jesus and empowered him for life. From now on, anything and everything is possible. And just as with Adam, amongst all this, the father spoke one word of instruction. You are my son. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. In other words, you are special, you are unique, you are the anointed and chosen Messiah. And as that Messiah, you're going to accomplish my ends. You are to be the saviour of all my people. Jesus has been equipped for the task ahead. And through undertaking baptism, that great picture of forgiveness, he knows exactly what the task is. He is to provide salvation. Jesus is now called. Jesus is equipped. It should have been easy from here, right? But again, up slithers the devil, this time spouting a whole line of plausible suggestions about how Jesus is to go about his mission as Messiah. And what is the one thing the devil seizes on? What is the one thing it tries to raise doubts about? Yep, just as with Asm. It raises doubts about the one thing the father had said. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. If you are the son of God. If. If. Do you get it? This isn't just a challenge over whether Jesus is a good baker or not. This is a direct testing of his calling as Messiah. Are you sure you are God's son? Because surely God wouldn't want his beloved son to be famished with hunger. Brackets. Surely he would love you more than that. And then after Jesus has rebuffed that first comment, it continues. Well, if you are God's son, surely you don't have to take the difficult route to fulfilling your mission. You don't have to suffer to win the people throw yourself down from the temple and everyone will be so amazed by the miraculous display they'll follow you straight away worship me i will give you all the power you need to force them to follow you then you won't have to suffer at all do you get it do you, do you see how plausible it all sounds it sounds like the type of thing a loving father might say and, and that bit about the angels lifting him up, that's a direct quote from Psalm 91. Jesus is facing the same temptation that Adam did in the same form and shape. Jesus shares the exact same flesh and blood as Adam because unlike Superman, he has our flesh and blood. 
The temptations are about who Jesus is and what God said. How would Jesus act as God's Messiah? Exactly how would he save the world? Would he try and buy poor people's affection with bread? Would he try giving magical signs to win the people over, like many other magicians in the land at that time? Would he try and seize power, again like many other violent revolutionaries were trying to do in Israel at that time, forcing the people to follow him? No, no, no. As each method comes to mind, Jesus sees its flaws. Bread alone doesn't satisfy for long. People would soon want more. Miracles never satisfy. A day later, the people would doubt what they saw with their own eyes. And power and violence don't work either. Revolutions are defeated and force leaves no room for love. As Jesus sits in the desert with these thoughts and temptations, he knows that if he is God's son, which he knows he is, then he will win the people another way. He will be their Messiah through the strange route of humility, service and ultimately death. And Jesus has resolved to follow this course. The enemy will return near the end in Gethsemane to try and stop him again. But for now, unlike Adam, Jesus has overcome. Jesus is not Superman, but this very real human by the power of the Holy Spirit has won round one. I want to take you back again. Back to the start of Israel, back to the desert of Egypt. As Israel escaped in the Exodus, they went through the waters of the Red Sea. And as they did so, God declared that Israel was his firstborn son. Then followed 40 years wandering in the desert, where Israel grumbled for bread when hungry, frequently put God to the test and flirted disastrously with idolatry. In those 40 years, Israel learned by the hardest possible way how to live as God's people, how to trust God in everything. Now fast forward again to this passage. It is almost an exact replica. And again, it's no coincidence. Jesus has just come through the water, not the Red Sea, but of baptism. And as he did so, he also is declared as God's unique son through whom Israel's destiny will be fulfilled. Then he is led out by God as if by a pillar of cloud into the desert, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. The number is significant and the temptations he faced are the same. Bread, putting God to the test, idolatry, which is what worshipping the devil is. Exactly the same tests in exactly the same pattern. What's the point? Well, the point is unsurprisingly, again, the same. Jesus, too, has to learn to live as the father's child. Jesus, too, has to learn to trust his father in everything. And he has to learn this now, right at the start of his ministry, because come Gethsemane and Calvary, that trust will be tested to the absolute limit. The echoes of the Exodus in this story shows us that Jesus is the fulfilment of Israel. And this too, like the echoes of the Garden of Eden, is no coincidence. 
God is at work here. He knows what he is doing. Now, why is all that background important? Well, let me tell you. It means that in this story, the wilderness does not belong to the devil. It belongs to God. The Spirit leads Jesus into it and God's angels attend to him at the end. In other words, everything, absolutely everything that takes place in the desert is under God's ultimate direction. Even the loathsome devil, unbeknown to itself, is just a pawn in God's plan. The Father has anointed Jesus with the Spirit and now he is teaching him how to live in the Spirit. Through the temptation and testing, Jesus is learning and gaining strength. In the desert, Jesus grows. The Father is achieving his ends. Now relate that to your own life. When we're going through a tough time, when we feel as though we're in a spiritual desert, we so quickly turn on God, don't we? God must have left us. It must be his fault. We feel like the devil is throwing thunderbolts at us and and God is doing nothing about it. Well, this passage shows us that that's not true. The desert is not the devil's place. It is God's place, just as everywhere is God's place. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. In other words, God is everywhere. Everywhere is his. Everywhere is in his control. So sometimes when we're going through difficulty and temptation, it's not the direct punishment from God as we might be drawn to think. Jesus is not being punished here. Instead, it's preparation. Preparation for things we had ahead of us in our service of God. We're not going to be tempted in the exact same way that Jesus was, for we are not the Messiah. But every Christian will be tested at the points in their life which matter most to their vocation for God. I can see this in my own life. When I preached my first sermon and felt God say that this is what I was to do, that night someone threw a brick through my car windscreen. When I got accepted into college to study the Bible, my girlfriend at the time laid down the ultimatum that it was college or her. When I heard God say that I was to marry Emily and we were to serve him together in ministry, then came the strongest temptation to have sex outside of marriage. And even now, when Emily and I sense that God is speaking to us, we're most likely to argue the next day. It happens over and over again. Every Christian is tested at the points which matter most in their life and calling for the Lord. It happened to Jesus. It will happen to us. The important thing then is not to throw our hands up in the air and exclaim about the devil having a field day, but to see it as the Father preparing us, the Father teaching us the hard way to truly trust him and him alone. Just like he did with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, just like he did with Jesus in the desert for 40 days. It's therefore a 
central part of our Christian discipleship to learn and recognise these points where testing occurs, to recognise when deceptive voices are whispering lies to us and learn instead of following them like Adam did, to lean on God and all the more. So let's then finish with some very practical suggestions that this passage offers to us on how to cope in times of trial and temptation. First of all, notice that Jesus does not argue with the devil or go on thinking about the temptation, trying to weigh up its good and bad points. Why does he not do that? Well, because to argue with temptation, to dwell on it, is to play with it until it becomes too attractive to resist. Do not deliberate with temptation or try to weigh up the argument for both sides. Instead, name it for what it is. And when we've recognised the test, we're to follow what Jesus did. Jesus went straight to scripture and began to quote it. In fact, he deliberately quoted passages from the time of Israel's testing in the wilderness to show that this was the way to succeed, whereas they failed. Going to scripture is so important. It shows us right and wrong. It gives us the resources to stand firm. And we need to be humble. We need to recognise that we're often weak in the face of trial and go to scripture for help. Second comes trust of God. Trust comes from loyalty and loyalty is fostered by prayer. Jesus said to the second challenge, do not put the Lord God to the test. In other words, trust him. When tested, Trust God. Go to him. Tell him the temptations. Ask for help. Don't just rush ahead and expect him to bless your decisions. Take the time to stop and pray. And finally, Jesus shows us the importance of praise and worship. In answer to the third temptation, Jesus points out that we are to worship the Lord God and serve him only. When we are tempted, when life is hard, praise and worship focuses our attention on God. At the centre of faithful resistance is love of God and service of him. And that is why when life is hard, we should run to church and not away from it. We must learn the key of worshipping even in the tough times. As the great worship song says, you give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will truly say, Lord, blessed be your name. That is an important part of standing firm. I believe this passage shows us that if we allow difficult times and desert experiences to lead us back to scripture, to earnest prayer and worship, we will come out of them like Jesus did, much stronger for them. To conclude then, Jesus went on from the desert, fixed on his calling, equipped by the Spirit, and as the new Adam, saved the world. We too can learn our calling, sense the Spirit, and move through times of testing to to make a great impact for God. But to do so, we need to stand firm and hang on to the Lord. We're not called to be supermen and superwomen. We're just called to obey.